Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. I'm very excited to speak to Sheila, as we have been planning to have this podcast for a long time. Sheila Frick is a pediatric occupational therapist and founder of Vital Links. Sheila has well over 30 years of clinical experience in sensory processing dysfunction, sensory integration, and auditory intervention. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Dean. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. So, Sheila, what made you develop the therapeutic listening program? Well, um, I had been practicing in sensory integration for, I think it was about 10 years. So now we're going back. I actually have over 40 years experience. Um, it's quite a bit. Um, <laughs> still loving my work. But I, was, I had been practicing for about 10 years and I had a sensory integration clinic and I was quite excited about it and the work that I was doing. And um, several of my clients who... Um, uh, were uh, challenged with um, autism, had gone to do a technique, a sound technique called auditory um, integration training. And I have to say that several went and um, I didn't see much of a result, although I will say that my eye wasn't trained in the way it is now to know what I was expected to be looking for. But parents were often looking for kids to start talking and, and many of them didn't. And I think that we kind of let that go. And then I had a young man who, David, who I was seeing that was three and um, he was diagnosed with autism and he was, he was a little guy that I really loved treating, but he was quite a challenge. So he maybe would sit still for three seconds um, and then he was off and turning the lights on and off. And if he could find something that looked like a strap, he was quite fascinated with what that looked like if you put it over a door handle and swung it back and forth. And so keeping him, getting his attention and getting him focused, he also had um, was born quite prematurely and had a brain bleed and had severe oral motor issues where he was fed by a tube, a peg, and he wasn't eating anything by mouth. And I had been trying to work on just being able to touch his face without him vomiting, you know, was like one of my goals yeah. um, in trying to get him to, you know, engage in play. Um, and David's mom took him to, uh, and at this point we had fast forward a couple of years to a practitioner who had just started using this auditory intervention. And of course, David wouldn't sit still and David's mom had worked with me. So she took a large therapy ball and she bounced him the entire time he did this auditory intervention. And, um, when he came back home, he, um, was starting to eat like five, like plum baby food. He actually escaped out of the house. He didn't really escape, but he, uh, they never locked the front door because he was afraid to go down the stairs and he went down the stairs. He had been afraid of the swings before he was enjoying the swings. His attention span had gone from three seconds to about a minute, which seemed like forever. And it was actually my husband 
who looked at me and he said, you know, you have to go get trained in this technique because it's sensory integration. And I'm like, no, no, Ron, it's weird. I'm, I'm, I, I just, I just don't know. Um, but he's like, no, 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 no. You have to go. And you know, if you don't go, I'm going to go without you. Well, you know, he's, he's not a therapist. So that was kind of a good threat to get me going. And, um, and so I did go with him and got trained in auditory integration training, which was expensive. So um, I just thank my dear mother, who is now no longer with us, but for really how many lives she's impacted because she actually lent me money to get the expensive equipment. And so I was still skeptical. And so I went and trained in auditory intervention auditory integration training and I said to my husband we're not gonna just sit kids in a room because I said oh kids have to sit in a room they can't do anything and you know you have to play exactly this music and I think we're kind of a little bit of rule breakers so um, I was like well I'm not gonna charge families this amount of money to just sit in a room so we got a 20-foot cord and put headphones on the kids while they were in the sensory integration clinic and do, you know, on the swings, the trampoline, the ball pit, um, if they wanted to burrow in the pillows or we were following their lead, what they wanted to do. And we really just started to see amazing results. And the things that had taken me prior to adding sound to sensory integration, the things that had taken me maybe six months to shift, we were shifting in a, a, a week or two. So then, then wow. kind of, that was sort of the intro. And then my husband said, you know, there's a lot of other things that happened there. He started to pick music based on, he's very musical. So my husband is a mathematician musician. And so he, and he's gifted in seeing patterns and he's extremely kinesthetic. And so a child would walk in and he would tell me what music to play. And we were choosing from popular music that we had on this playlist that was approved music. Um, and so that was one thing that really carries over into therapeutic listening, that we really evaluate kids and we look at them from a sensory motor integration sort of standpoint and then choose music based on their needs. But anyway, my same renegade husband said to me, you know, this is so expensive. We, you know, we really could record our own music and then just use a modulation like the machine is doing and we could make this accessible to everybody and it wouldn't have to because it was literally back now you're going back 30 some years yeah um and we mm -hmm. were inexpensive we charge you basically um the ot rate for the amount of time we you spent with us but other people were charging upwards of two thousand dollars for 10 days of treatment with no ot mm -hmm. with it so he's like, well, you know, some people can't afford this. We can make this easily accessible. And I was sort of dragged my feet for a while. And then he just kept moving forward. And we ended up um, hooking up inadvertently with somebody um, who was at um, a music school out in L.A. And we got in with top rated like Hollywood musicians, the guys who do, you know, the music for the movies. And that was sort of mm -hmm. the beginning of therapeutic listening. So it's it's kind of a homespun therapy. I always, in a way, or it's really clinic spun. We started therapeutic listening from a clinical perspective, and that's really, I think, what makes it super unique. You know, we were following the children and what we had learned from. By the time we developed therapeutic listening, I had already used auditory integration training with over, I think, two or 3,000 children. 
um, people were flocking mm -hmm. to us because you know that many kids won't sit still in a room. So we had people flying from all over to come mm -hmm. see us because they would have the added benefit of getting the auditory with the sensory integration. I've benefited a lot from the therapeutic listening program. And can you please explain a little sure. bit what it is? So, well, first of all, I think the music really matters. And that's that, I think, sets us apart from what some other programs do. I think they choose music and pay attention, but we really match it to the kids' needs. So we really do a whole you know, profile on you, like what is, and we call it the functional listening questionnaire, where we look at how sensation is disrupting function, not just how you might be over or under responding, but also we take a really serious look at the vestibular um, visual auditory integration and how that affects how you organize your body in space and really look at kids and how they move and how they relate to gravity and how well they organize their body in space through a number of observations. Um, so anyway, that's one thing about the therapeutic technique. But basically what we've done is we had quite a few years of experience. I said those 3,000 children that we watched and that we chose music for. And so we imitated a lot of movement rhythms. We now know that, know definitively that through the rhythm and sound that you get into the vestibular system. It was not something that was proven until 2012. And we developed this way back in 1998. But we had seen clinically that when you use you know, rhythm and music, like all music is going to basically have rhythm. But when you think about um, the rhythms that we used are the rhythms that if you are listening, even if I play it to a group of therapists, they'll start moving, not without, they're not thinking I'm going to move to the music and dance or tapping a foot or swaying with the music that inherently just sort of invites you to move. And it has to do with the way that we're wired. But so we we really paid attention to the music. And then we started out, our very beginning was using a very similar technique to what was done in what was called AIT, auditory integration training. Um, we call it modulating the music. Um, it actually, I've come to find out because I've since done many, many, many sound trainings with other um, people, I'm trained in Tomatis as well, and is that it was the basic thing that Tomatis did early on. He now, if you do a Tomatis-based listening program, you're going to add other things to it. But, um, but basically, it's an alternating high-low pass filter. So, and that's just a the technical name for it. But basically, what you're doing is highlighting the parts of sound that naturally capture one's attention. We're wired to tune into if sounds increase in intensity in a certain range, we're wired to tune into them. And that's that, the vocal range, that just makes sense. So, and we're wired to zoom the ear. You actually, when sounds above a thousand hertz, and that's like kind of um, just, uh, you'll maybe some of the vowels, I'm trying to think of what sounds, but mid range kind of a voice-ish. Um, or lower end of voice, but when you have more intensity in the sound above a thousand hertz, it trips triggers in the nervous system to say, hey, pay attention. Someone's vocalizing. I didn't want to say talking because it's not words. It's in the sound of a voice, just like you watch 
a mother talk to a baby in mother ease, she's modulating her voice with a high, she's not using a, a technique, but that the ups and downs of it is what we're naturally wired for. Babies are wired for mother ease. So we're, we're tripping the triggers in those parts of the brain that turn your attention toward another, that turn your attention toward the um, human voice, that turn your body toward the sound source. So it's um, a, a, a mechanism within the nervous system called the orienting response, where um, if there is uh, a stimuli that's novel enough and intense enough, it kicks in an orienting response. But we also know that's highly intertwined with the social engagement system. So um, it, it, and then that's highly intertwined with our regulatory physiology. Why David would start eating is because we tapped into his basic physiology of feeling safe and feeling connected on a physiological level. So um, I don't know, that may be too much information, but it, it now makes all kinds of sense. I have to admit that 30 years ago, I just saw that it worked. Um, and then I spent the last 30 years just, and I continue to follow the research and follow the neuroscience that explains what we see repeatedly over and over again. Uh, what would explain that we see increased focus and attention? What would explain that we see greater tolerance for noise, that we see better mood and we see less tantrums and we see less anxiety and we see better communication skills? Um, so th that's um, some of the results, but it's basically we are trapping or tipping, tripping, tripping triggers or tapping into the part of the nervous system and saying, hey, look, you're safe. And when you say you're safe to the nervous system, it then wants to approach and engage. So that's that's really what the modulated um, piece does. And we've seen it repeatedly. Um, over and over and over again. It never ceases to amaze me, though, when kids change before your very eyes. That's, that's like probably why I will not ever really retire until, I don't know, I can't move anymore or whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun to <laughs> and you know, really see. You're, and you're not doing something to someone. You're just opening and finding a way to get to their innate potential. Uh -huh. And what kind of results can parents expect from therapeutic listening well, sessions? Well, I think that um, it depends on what issues are. So you are going to see better regulation of arousal. Now, it depends on when your child's dis arousal is dysregulated, what does that look like? So, you know, it can look like better sleep. It can look like better eating or willingness to uh, try new foods. Um it can look like um, better behavior. It can look like that your sensory issues in terms of your over responding to sensations. Um, we've seen, you know, from sound to movement to touch has improved. Um, it could mean a number of things. And, you know, I, we don't, because I'm an occupational therapist, we don't say that it's going to improve speech and language. But I do have to say, um, I just today was on a telehealth session with, interestingly enough, one of my clients from, was it 
a child I treated his child. So, you know, now I'm a grandmother and now I'm like a grandmother in treatment. So now I am treating children's children (laughs) that I treated before. Um, Uh Actually, his sister had autism and he just had some subtle attentional issues and I treated them both. And now his uh, little one uh, was not talking. And so he has had one musical choice and listened for it turns out with COVID he listened to three weeks and typically we would change our music before that and they're like yeah like well now he's starting to talk and he I came home the other day and he very clearly said hi Mm -hmm. daddy now that's not something I would ever say or promise to a parent um uh, people could always go on our website there's a there's a lovely um parent video there of Gray and Gray's mom And Gray's mom had called me up the same thing with the talking and said, you know, my speech therapist said I should really see you and you do this auditory thing. And I really want my child to talk. And I said, you know, I'm not a speech therapist. I can't promise you that your child's going to talk. What I can say is if he has underlying sensory processing issues, that if we clean those up, then his talking might come. And he had a diagnosis of speech apraxia. Um, and you know, when he got here, she didn't see it because it was her firstborn. You know, he was fearful of movement when he was walking just on the mat, stepping down an mm-hmm. inch, looked like he stopped his whole body. And these are things we see as therapists that I think parents wouldn't notice, you know, for because they're like, well, hey, yeah, look, he's two, you know, but no, it's not a typical two year old. Mm-hmm. And he was fearful of movement, he had sound sensitivities. Um, he had what we would call some vestibular postural ocular issues. He had, so we saw um, issues with the way he held his body against gravity and how well his eyes and his body were organized. And we put him on a, a listening program. It was the easiest thing to do at the end of a visit. And I said to her, look, if I see those sensory processing problems, then we'll use the listening, but I'm not gonna just promise you that you'll get talking. And within two weeks, he was starting to say Mama, Dada, and Bitsy, which mm. is the dog's name. And then in the video, mm-hmm. I just remember the day we actually had somebody else come in and interview the parents and do a professional filming for our website. And I sat out on the picnic table out in the yard with Gray while they interviewed Gray's mom. I didn't answer, ask the questions. And he talked my ear off. And she said to me on that day, she said, you know, I, when I first came to you, I really wanted him to start talking. And she said, now can you get him to be quiet? <laughs> so, so certainly speech <laughs> and language is a potential outcome, but it's because we organize things yes. lower in the brain. Um, one of the things that sensory integration and Dr. Ayers always reported was is that a lot of the signals that are coming in, not at the high brain conscious level, but in the parts of the brain that are going to be responsible for arousal and, you know, our sleep-wake cycles, our hunger-thirst, as well as how we label sensation as safe or not safe. As we sensory information comes in, we decide if we're going to approach it or avoid it or ignore it. And that part of the brain where we also have basic movement patterns that orient us to the world, like you, you see a sight you don't think of it and your, your, your head just turns. We do that all the time or you hear a sound and your whole body turns toward the sound. You don't think before you do that. And she felt like that's where 
she, I love, she said there was like a traffic jam there, you know, in those lower parts of the brain. So when we see signs that the lower parts of the brain are not well organized, that's when we feel like the therapeutic listening can be really helpful. So um, people, speech and language and audiologists would say auditory processing. I would say audition, the non-language processing of sound. If we organize that, mm-hmm. we often see the speech and language come. At the time when uh, uh, I started doing the therapeutic listening, uh, I used to use the Sansa machine, but now I see that you can also mm-hmm. have it on a phone, right? Yeah, so what we did was, well, so our th- Our whole thing, and the only reason we did therapeutic listening, we're not, I mean, we obviously are a business because we had to be to create and, you know, it was an investment to do that and distribute, but we really just wanted things to be accessible and inexpensive. So we now have an app on the phone. So it's the therapeutic listening app. Um, You, most of the music needs a therapist code because we really are not interested in selling things to parents without somebody who really has trained in the underneath theoretical information because there's a lot to it. So uh, it's therapists who, and we'll take people and train them, but um, when they're trained, then they get a code so that you can't just order the music. There is one grouping of music that we just developed in the last 10 years and has become quite popular called quick shifts, which is modified a different way. And that's music that is accessible to other people. Although I think it's still best when it's delivered by somebody who's had more training. We do have some free information on our website, a little hour long um, video, or it was a, a webinar that we did that we recorded. Um, we have actually have a couple of different ones on the quick shift on our website and our blog section on the vital links website. So, um, yeah, so there are many, there's now what we call several libraries. There's modulated music, which has the alternating high, low pass filter. There's this quick shift, which is about really aimed at affecting arousal states and it's, um, uses entrainment technology and the entrainment technology is geared at the alpha brainwave frequency, which is sort of when you see the baby in the quiet alert state, but it's also the just right place of arousal. It's like when you're feeling really good and you're just flowing along without thinking and everything feels easy. Um, it really is analogous to mindfulness. And so it's helpful in many, many ways from focus and attention to decreasing anxiety and fear. We actually just opened an email from a therapist who came to the workshop um, and interestingly enough had had an interesting history of some health issues that created anxiety and it was our a heart condition and she said she was listening to a regulation two quick shift after the course and she said it's amazing her heart rate which has always been irregular was now improved by so many beats like that's not something I would have intended but it's like when you get to some of those core brain structures you can impact a lot um, if you know that's part of where the problem is Mm-hmm. And if people listen to it uh, through the phone, do they need well, special so earphones? Well, so if you're doing some of the programming that is meant to tune the ear in 
to the vocal range um, and to get the details. And so for kids who are using the modulated music or the higher level of that's called fine tuning, you need the special earphones. If you're doing the quick shifts, uh -huh. you don't. Okay. And um, Shuna, I wanted to ask about the link between retained primitive reflexes oh, and sensor integration. Sorry. And how <laughs> and how do you help children to integrate primitive so, reflexes so I in your think, clinic? To me, this is a really interesting link because I think very few people, well, that's not true. Dr. Ayers talked about primitive reflexes as being a, a symptom of poor sensory integration. And really, that's how I look at them. I look at them in terms of they tell you moment to moment where someone's nervous system is at. Um, so I will, in my first round of assessment, assess everything. And I do look at the reflexes, but let's just pick one. So um, if you have, uh, as people say, and I don't like the word re retained, that's just my personal thing, because the truth of the matter is, is those patterns are retained within your nervous system. And they are a part of overall development. So the tonic labyrinthine reflex is one, and people would test it in a number of ways. But sort of the classic test for that is it's a tonic labyrinthine. So tone, meaning kind of muscle tone, and labyrinthine means the, the part of the vestibular system. So it's about how you relate your, your body to gravity. So even for anybody listening right now, if you're sitting in a chair, if you sort of take your head forward kind of, and or like uh, of, your, of your spine, so move your head towards your belly button, you'll feel how the muscles on the front side of your body are toned. And if you take your head back, like you're gonna look up at the ceiling, you'll feel how the muscles on the backside are toned. By the time you're three, if you're standing, you should be able to look at the ceiling and the tone won't be so reflexive or immature that it would pull you over. If you were two and you're standing out on your lawn or garden in the yard and a plane goes overhead and you look up, you'll sit down on your bottom because the tone will pull you over. So at two, we would say that's retained because it should be, but after that, it shouldn't be. So if somebody comes to me and they're three and I test them and I see that tonic labyrinthine is not integrated, I would use that language. To me, it means not just doing a group of exercises. So I'm like, okay, great. I know that I have a vestibular proprioceptive processing issue. Okay, now I wanna look at your eyes. Oh yeah, you're not tracking very well because I know that that's all wired together. So my treatment would include a very specific vestibular proprioceptive um, home programs, yes, but I would then play in the clinic in all kinds of ways on the equipment, enhancing vestibular proprioception as it would have come in in the first year of life, like being maybe in different developmental positions, but as a part of play, not down on the ground, but doing certain things on a swing or et cetera. So it means I have to do more specific vestibular and proprioceptive work. That's how I, I would interpret it, the reflexes. And so if you want to say you, 
it's really in your language and how you understand things. Um, many people that work on reflex integration have that as their framework and they don't have the larger component of sensory integration. And that's really what Dr. Ayers was doing. She designed the scooter boards to work on, mm -hmm. put you back into a similar position. The baby works on the tonic labyrinthine by working on their belly and working on their back on the floor, but they're not working, they're playing, they're exploring how their body works. And if you have uh, poor integration in the tonic lab, you don't want to lay on the ground and just pick up your head. That's not that fun. But if I put you on a scooter board and I send you fast on, I push you up against the wall, I can't, I, I can't language this so you would get it. But let's just say if I put you on the scooter board and um, I give you a piece of bungee and I pull you around and whip you around and you have to hold your body on there, you're working on tonic lab, you're also getting vestibular proprioceptive input. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. So that's all about the well, astronaut, astronaut training, training, right? Is really um, a languaging that uh, we did um, to just, I think in the world that I came from, um, we use clinical reasoning. And so you would look at a child and then you would create all kinds of activities. And we created astronaut training as a template to make sure that therapist, and this, as you fast forward in this day and age, not everybody has that full training, that people had a template for actually giving input to every single component of the um, vestibular system, and then looking at how the vestibular system was related to the eyes, because the vestibular system are, is very wired to the eyes, to the neck, and to all of the muscles of the body through the vestibulospinal pathway. So yeah, astronaut training is kind of a, a template for that, if you will. And, and, and you know what, it's a buzzword for a set of activities that we do, um, if, if you will. I'm so, um, I think I can be difficult for people because once I understand the concepts behind things in treatment, I'm always changing things around um, in terms of it won't always look like astronaut training, but I'll be following the principles. I guess that might be a good way to say it. And uh, today, and especially with the COVID-19, how do parents find Vitalink therapists? Um, so uh, you can go, we have a therapist search on our website. Um, if you um, go on, I'm a therapist locator. And I'm, it's funny because I'm really very much on the therapy side of things. I think everybody else knows their website better. Uh, but I know there's a provider directory <laughs> somewhere on there where you can type in where you're at. Also, um, I'm not sure, you probably are casting all over the world, but uh, there is yeah. um, a really strong group. I know you're in London and some really incredible therapists there. Um, and there is a company called BrainSense uh, run by Anna Richardson and another OT. And mm -hmm. Anna has done just some fabulous work and is also working um, in training therapists and also mentoring them. So she's, I mean, for local people that are local in London that are listening, that is a great place to start. And she is actually training people in um, the therapeutic listening and has just done some really remarkable things, especially in the world 
of children with autism who are quite severely impacted by their autism. She's working at a special school there where individuals with autism and with really severe challenges and doing just like amazing work. Um, so I would highly recommend her to people and BrainSense is their website. She's a little busy. And I think what you find with a lot of the therapeutic listening therapists is they're clinicians first. And, you know, we try to stay connected on the web and do all of the stuff so people can find us, but it's not always our first uh, <laughs> thing to think about. Exactly. So uh, Anna Richardson's oh, website is called Room. Yeah. Brain Sense. Uh -huh. And um, just out of curiosity, nowadays, do therapists like do video calls with the well, patients? Well, that's what or? we're doing with COVID. I don't know how people, yes, we've been doing telehealth now just because um, in our area here, some people are back in the clinic we haven't quite figured it out with our other scheduling. So we've been doing it through telehealth. So, which I think is something mm -hmm. that's going to kind of be here to stay in the future, not solidly. I think that now it opened the Avenue where people saw that could be helpful. So I think we may be doing more yeah. of that um, in the future. Uh -huh. So, is your uh, clinic open internationally for we people to contact you? We often have people, um, we, what, the way that we practice when our clinic is open is through intensives, treatment intensives, and we've had people fly from other countries to see us and spend time. Now, we haven't, um, in terms of doing video consults with another country, we are just um, working now to make sure that we're following all of our licensure kinds of things and all of the rules in terms of how we can treat, but we've had people coming here and I think that it would be something we could do if people were interested in doing a video consult. Okay, so I how do, do they contact, contact you? contact us through information at vitallinks.net. It will come to, there's basically now, um, Myself and then another just brilliant therapist that worked with me. Uh, she's a partner in teaching and in the clinic, Tracy Bjorling. So either one of us would get the message and get back to people. Okay. Thank you so much, Sheila. It was really great to speak to you. And thank, thank you, Dana. <laughs> I really appreciate your time and your interest in all of the work that we do. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to this Sensory Change podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe.